Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, your host. Uh, Today's show, Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com, myself. We're going to break down Florida's victory at Texas A&M. We will talk about Florida's win over Vanderbilt, talk about the growth of the team defensively in two uh, must-win games. And then we're going to spend some time on uh, Billy Donovan and Billy Donovan night, uh, the court dedication ceremony, obviously an emotional special night for Gators, I think, everywhere. Uh, just kind of talk about Billy's legacy and, and why, to some extent, all the players coming back really speaks to the basketball culture of Florida and why I think that is something that kind of separates Florida from a lot of the other places in, in the SEC, uh, even as it may seem like they're uh, doing a little better on the court at least this season. Um, remember to give us a rating, Spotify, Google, iTunes. Drop a rating, drop suggestions. Uh, we appreciate all of them, no matter how many stars you give us. Uh, we, you know, we're here for you, and we hope that you're enjoying uh, the show and enjoyed a good week of, of two wins. Um, so thanks for listening, and uh, enjoy the program. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, Saturday Down South. I'm with Derek Foss at GatorCountry.com. Uh, for like the first five minutes of the show, you might hear some background noise. It's me getting home, um, more or less. Uh, but but I wanted to make sure that we're recording Sunday afternoon. We have a, a good show, I think, to talk about, a lot to talk about. Uh, special night against Vanderbilt to talk about. But I want to start with the Texas A&M game. Uh, Florida gets a road win. Those have been hard to come by, Eric. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that has been the case. Uh, uh, getting these wins away from home haven't, uh, you know, it's not not easy in, in a lot of leagues. Certainly not easy in uh, in the SEC. And uh, for Florida to to you know kind of stay in the mix at the top of the standings, uh, they've needed to get some of these wins on the road. And uh, yeah, ultimately they were able to, to overwhelm Texas A&M for a win. So. Uh, yeah, one that was much needed and uh, uh, hopefully made the team feel a little bit better getting a comfortable win like that. Uh, you know, Neil, I asked you before the game uh, when our, in our last podcast if there was any outcome that uh, that would have made the game uh, feel like a success to you. And, and you kind of said just like, hey, I just I just need to see a win. Uh, do you think you took it kind of overarching before we get into uh, anything specific? Was there anything about that game that you found like? particularly encouraging or was it just the win you were looking for or uh, or what was it like for you there well it's funny because i think i think i said i want to see florida keep a&m in like the 50s and score in the 70s or something like that like i wanted a you know a 15 point or so road win at a place where that's not really something that a&m had allowed to happen much you know they had been much more competitive at home and, and I, I mainly wanted to see Florida defend really well. And so two things. Um, I thought Florida defended fine, but I thought it was probably the most complete they'd played offensively uh, in the season. And I know that's a specific detail. So I guess I, I kind of got what I was hoping to see. And then, you know, to your point, yeah, I mean, in the SEC, um, you know, the home team is winning or is winning 70% of the games right now, which is the second highest among power six leagues. Uh, so yeah, I mean, road wins are hard to come by. It's a big reason why the Miss state loss for Florida, I think 
hurts so so much when we when we start talking about you know the home stretch of the season. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but yeah, I mean it was that. And then for me, diving into specifics, Eric, I thought ball movement um, and just the kind of mix of of set offenses versus motion offense probably Florida's best offensive performance. Uh, I probably wouldn't go that far. Like okay. one thing that I, I probably thought, so, so there was a similar, uh, in Florida's first game against Ole Miss where, where Florida won, uh, really easily, there was a kind of a similar sentiment and it was, uh, you know, Florida's moving the ball really well, uh, which they absolutely were. Don't get me wrong, but it was really when Texas A&M went into a zone that Florida was able to do that. And okay. that was the same thing as the first game against Ole Miss. So uh, something that has been, you know, really interesting is the fact that Florida has moved the ball or, or sorry, just been able to score really well against zones. Like anytime right. a team has went zone, Florida has really dominated it. And uh, uh, so while I will say, um, yes, Florida absolutely did move the ball against Texas A&M really well. And they picked apart that zone just like in a really encouraging fashion. I'm just not entirely sure how much to, to take from that. Just knowing that a lot of teams are not going to, uh, be not going to play a zone like that where they allow Florida to move the ball around. So that's just one thing because uh, it was kind of some something similar after that first Ole Miss game was people like that was one of Florida's best ball movement games and uh, it certainly was. But when teams play zone, that's uh, uh, it, it certainly makes it a lot easier. Which uh, you know definitely definitely props to Florida for moving the ball, uh, for getting really good shots, and for playing really good offense. Uh, I, I just like see that offense against the zone, which like has been really good all year. And I'm just like, not totally sure what to take from it moving forward. But uh, Hey, as, as long as if, if teams are going to play zones against Florida, we, we know that they know what to do and we know that they can, uh, that they can score against them. Yeah. And I, I, that's interesting. And that's, that's a the point well taken. I think maybe my, my odd contrary, it's not even an odd contrary. Maybe my point to kind of illustrate why I thought the ball movement was so good is like, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about what an intelligent player Keontae Johnson is, for example. And I know before the season we said, you know, he's actually a really good passer. This was kind of one of the first games where as good a season as Keontae's had, where we saw like his ability to move the ball to other to other people and not just attack closeouts and find ways to impact the game on the offensive glass and things like that. I mean, the six assists. Uh, I don't know how many of them came necessarily when A&M was in zone, but a lot of it was like Keontae would attack and close out, and then he would find the open man instead of, you know, because he can play off two feet or because he determined that the open man was going to have a better look than he would if he did one of his little push shots that, that he likes to do or the layup wasn't there, so he was ready to kick to the corner. And so I just thought, like, a lot of the passes that Florida made zone or no where we're kind of intelligent find the extra man move the defender passes that that this team hasn't always done oh yeah i mean keontae johnson was fantastic and uh, uh yeah some other guys moved the ball really well too uh, like something that's re- like crazy so here's here's kind of the numbers versus man and versus zone so obviously florida has played a lot more man this year but uh, against man they're at 0.888 points per possession Against zone defenses, they're at 1.175 points per possession. So they're, and yeah, so like anytime a team has gone zone, like Florida has done awesome against it. So uh, that's one thing too that's like so nice about when Florida can play well against man, uh, against teams that play man, because like if, if they do have a zone defense in their back pocket or it's kind of like a secondary defense they like to play, uh, probably like any coach who's 
kind of aware of it is, is going to be hesitant to do so. And um, te- Texas A&M, like their, their staff is, is one that uses analytics a lot. I- I've had a lot of conversations with, uh, with someone who does their analytics, really good guy, uh, smart guy. Uh, and yeah, he was talking to me because I, I mentioned that, that uh, when they went zone that I'm like, yeah, like, you know, that's, that's not a, like, that's one thing Florida has really been able to, to score well against the zone. And, and he was mentioning, yeah, they like, they really didn't want to have to go to it. It was just kind of a desperation, see what happens. Obviously, Florida was able to handle it, but, but that's what's just so good. Like if Florida starts, like you were saying, have a good, good few set design plays against man that gets them going. Teams aren't going to want to go zone because Florida's, Florida's been good against it. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. And I think, you know, it, it, the other, you know, so I, let's shift to defense. Another encouraging thing, I think, in the last couple of weeks has been the play of Trey Mann. And I think one thing that's so surprising about it is the way that Trey seems to have found his way on defense. Like, that's how he's earned more minutes, which shouldn't surprise anybody that knows Mike White. But it's the confidence that man is showing on the floor, which I think is coming from just, you know, understanding defense. He was, he's not getting lost in switches as often as he was before. He's defending on two feet way more, you know, how many fouls did he have early in the year where he just left his feet on simple head fakes. Um, and I think it's impacting all of his game very slowly. Yeah. He's been excellent defensively. And that's uh, like, he, he really struggled there to start the season. So this is not like uh uh, this is not like a small thing. Like he really has, has turned it on defensively, uh, especially as a help defender. Uh, the way he's just started to take charges has been, uh, has been admirable. Like he's gotten just absolutely hammered on a few charges, but uh, yeah. I, he's, he's willing to take the contact. And uh, I, I think a lot of people do like, like the last few seasons, Florida maybe hasn't had the reputation of being like the most competitive team. Like they just had people maybe think that they lack a little bit of that fire. And I think that like Trey Mann uh, showing the willingness to take a charge and, and even just the fact that he's kind of seen that his shot hasn't really been falling this year, uh, that things haven't really worked out great for him on the offensive end, that he has been like, I'm going to totally work hard on the defensive end to, to be a valuable contributor. And I think that that shows a lot of competitiveness too, that he's not just going to be like, hey, I'm just going to keep jacking threes until they go in. He's like, hey, I'm going to totally change what I do on the defensive end to uh, to contribute to winning there. And I think that that shows a great level of competitiveness. So I think that people who want to see, you know, these Gators battling and being competitive, I think that uh, you see Trey Mann, who just like has totally rebranded himself within this uh, within the season. Uh, I, I think it's really impressive. Yeah, I mean, it's it's super encouraging because, you know, I think another thing we've made the point about on this this show is that you know, some people think defense is all effort. And so they watch a guy like Scotty Lewis who really – and don't don't get us wrong. We love that Lewis has the motor that he has. But he still sort of makes fundamental defensive mistakes, in my opinion, um, especially on, on his closeouts. Uh, and, you know, I mean, this – I'm not going to make a hot take, but Trey Mann, I think, has improved fundamentally on defense in leaps and bounds, whereas with, like, Scotty – you know, the effort's always been there, I think. Um, and he's just such a great recovery defender that maybe we think he's a little better defensively than he actually is. Yeah, well, like I was saying before, like, uh, yeah, I will, you know, start with the caveat. I do think that Scotty Lewis is a good defender. And, uh, yeah, the, the effort he shows right. is admirable. But uh, but if you if you look at, like, really any defensive metric, there's not a lot of it that really points to, to Scotty Lewis being a – like, I would say most metrics point to him being a – 
uh, an above average defender. None would say he's an excellent defender. Some would say he's a very average defender. Uh, if you look at his on off numbers for the Gators, he's not an impactful defender. Uh, but I, so, you know what? Numbers don't tell the whole story. I do think he is definitely an, a, a good defender. I would say he's above average, but uh, it, I, you know, if you want to look at Omar Payne's highlights from last night, because uh, of the, a couple of the blocks he got, a few of them were like Scotty Lewis sitting in the stands playing good defense, decides he wants to steal it and go the other way, uh, reaches aggressively. The guy crosses him over, uh, goes for a lamp, and then Omar Payne erases it. Uh, but there's just moments like that, too, with, with Lewis that, uh, again, he just – I've said this on the podcast a lot, and it's just something I would just love to see him clean up. But he just wants to get a steal on every possession, and that's not how you play defense at the high major level. Like, I think you need to contain guys. You don't need to – don't need to just overwhelm them and dominate them by stealing the ball every possession. And I think if he just uh, if he just stopped reaching, stopped really gambling in passing lanes, I I, I think he would be an easy way. Like I, I think he would instantly get get much much better. But uh, yeah, just the kind of your original points about uh, uh, playing within a team defensive scheme, uh, fundamentally playing better defense. Uh, no one has made more strides than Trey Man. I don't even think it's particularly close. No, I really don't think it is close. And it's funny because. You know, and, and so I don't want to diminish anything that, that Florida did either, because this is an a and team that went back and scored, you know, 74 points on the weekend against uh, against Georgia. And that Buzz Williams said has sort of been coming along offensively, while also like in the most polite way possible, kind of recognizing the limitations of his roster on offense. You know, like if you re- if you really need like Nebo to lead the way. Uh, you know, he's, he certainly plays hard. Um, but you know, there's not, it's just not like a, a very skilled offensive roster. Right. So, you know, Savion flag only gets 11 points against Florida made three threes and still only had 11. I just thought kind of a, a really impressive defensive performance, especially in the second half against a team that, you know, after the weekend is six and six in the sec for whatever you think that's worth. Yeah, I do think the defense was uh, was mostly improved, and uh, uh, you know, I I think we'll we'll get to it, but I do think Vanderbilt was actually a, a really really good defensive effort, and I think that part of that started with what they did against Texas A and M. Uh, so uh, I think uh, I think the way that they were able to uh, uh, to kind of stick to their guns, like again, like in the first half, Texas A and M, who's one of the worst shooting teams in the country hits a few threes that I thought were pretty well defended. And, and I kind of like that Florida didn't scramble and say like, Hey, we're going to change things. Uh, it was like, Hey, we're going to s- stick to our game plan here. Uh, and just uh, kind of bank on Texas A&M regressing to the mean. And that's what happened. And uh, you know, they go, they, I think they finished the game 25 or 26% from three. So yeah, uh, I, I do think you, again, you look at the, the tight first half score. Uh, I think a lot of it was due to just some uncharacteristic shot making from Texas A&M. Um, they kind of got back to earth to what they normally are in the second half. And uh, yeah, ultimately uh, that's why it was uh, a comfortable win. So two more points I want to make. And, and one, I think segues into the one listener question. I wanted to make sure we took on the A&M win. Um, but, but I'll start with coaching and we'll just do the listener question last. I thought, this was an interesting game because, you know, and I do think that there's some merit to the criticism that Florida's rotations this year have been weird. And it's something that Eric and I have talked about on the podcast. And by weird, I mean lacking any definitive rhyme or reason at times. Um, but I thought Florida's substitutions and timeouts were good against Texas A&M in the sense that, like, one thing Mike White was pretty clear about was, like, he wasn't going to have lazy turnovers. I mean, he, he put Andrew Nimhart on the bench 
for turning the ball over. Quiz Glover's played the least minutes he's played in the SEC uh, in in College Station. So it seemed to be a point of emphasis. Yeah, it, it was. And it was those, uh, you know, especially uh, something that, you know, is just really kind of grinded my gears is these turnovers that are not on scoring plays. Like, like again, Nemhart's turnovers are usually he's trying to thread a pass to a cutting Keontae right. Johnson and it gets tipped away or throw a lob to Omar Payne and it gets intercepted. But yeah, against Texas A&M, it was like, you know, he had those two travels where he just kind of dragged his pivot foot and uh, came to a stop when he wasn't certain of what he wanted to do. And then, uh, I, I, you know, that's the lowest minutes Quez Glover had played in a long time. Um, oh, yeah, lowest in actually, SEC play. Lowest in yeah, SEC lo- play. Neil, I've got a trivia time for you. Are you ready to, <laughs> uh, to take a stab at a question? Uh, yeah, let's do it. So, so Quez Glover... He's currently at a 26.9% turnover rate. Uh, that is extremely high. Uh, it is the highest a Florida Gator has put up in the last nine years. Can you guess who this, who is second in that list? So that's Whoa. the last nine years. While you think about that, um, I right. wish I could say a nice round 10 years, but Casey Prather as a freshman put up a 35% uh, turnover rate. So uh, unfortunately, I couldn't give you the round decade because I wanted you to uh, to maybe take a stab at the player who's in, who's in second behind Quez Lover. So oh, do you have Casey any guess Prather. who that could be? Uh, who has put the second highest turnover percentage behind Quez Lover in the last nine years? Oh man, I'm gonna guess and probably I know it's not Scotty Wilbekin because he valued the basketball his whole career, I think. So I'm gonna say Irving Walker and be wrong. So. Uh, perhaps, well, I, I will say very shockingly, uh, the person who has put up the second highest turnover percentage after Quez Glover is Chris Chioza in his freshman season. Ah. So I do think that's pretty interesting to note that, uh, you know, Chris Chioza, who obviously turned into a very responsible player, uh, started started kind of struggling with turnovers a little bit. Um, yeah, I will for Billy say, Donovan, too. Yeah, but I, I will say... Um, Chris Chioza had an assist rate of 18.5, which is quite mm. good, whereas Quez Glover's assist rate is 10.2. So Chris Chioza did turn the ball over a good deal, but he was generating assists where Quez Glover has uh, not been really generating much <laughs> offense for his teammates, but is still turning the ball over. So I, so that I, I do have to add that caveat because I don't want people saying like, oh, like, you know, Eric's pointing out that he's on the same trajectory as Chris Chioza because <laughs> uh, I, I'm certainly not. Uh, but it just is interesting that, uh, you know, like Chris Chioza turned into one of the safest players with the ball in the country and uh, wasn't great with it as a freshman. So something interesting to know. But, uh, uh, yeah, just wanted to jump in. I was looking at the, that, that this morning. I was like, oh, here's going to be a yeah, – there's no way Neil's going to – I definitely set you up for success because I don't think anyone would have guessed Chris Chioza even, as a, even yeah. as a freshman there. No, that's interesting. So the second point I wanted to make was um, obviously – the benching of Nimhart worked because he, he was spectacular. Um, and so I don't know why my uh, computer is making a ton of noise, but it is. I apologize to everybody. Um, okay, so uh, 24 for Andrew Nimhart, so one short of his career high. And then Noah Locke, Florida gets 45 points from their guards. You're going to win a lot of games on the road when your starting guards score 45 points. So I'll kind of make that observation and – and uh, ask Eric your, your thoughts on the guard performance, then we'll do a listener question. Yeah, obvi- obviously for him to turn it on in the second half, Nemhard, like uh, it, it was fantastic. And uh, it was great too. Like he has been a really shaky three point shooter this year, but uh, the fact that he went three for five, that's got to help his confidence. But, uh, but really, like what I've 
what has really changed is I thought Nemhart was going to be someone going into this year that was uh, uh, obviously we knew he was an excellent passer and I thought his three point shooting would come along. Uh, his three point shooting hasn't really come along. He's uh, still an excellent passer, but when he's at its best, it's it's when he's getting to the rim and, and getting layups, and that's just like not something I thought was really going to be uh, the case. But uh, but again, against Texas A and M, he's he's six for six in the paint, just uh, getting there and getting easy layups. Uh, part of that was a, a couple just like outstanding seals from Omar Payne, who also had a mm-hmm. couple of those seals against Vanderbilt. But uh, but again, like I, I really think that's when Florida's at their best. It is games where, where Nemhart has gotten into the paint. And uh, uh, and yeah, Noah Locke, uh, you know, we have to say it at some point, whether it's this game or Vanderbilt, where he was uh, both awesome, but he's up to 51 percent uh, three point shooting in, in conference play on on a lot of attempts. Uh, just a miraculous shooting season for him. So, uh, yeah, no, no hot takes there. Just uh uh, I Noah Locke has been just absolutely killing it from behind the arc. Yeah, I mean, and, and we've we've criticized the staff some, um, you know, <laughs> this season, but I think it's time to put to bed the oh he changed his shot and it's a disaster uh, takes. Uh, it's clearly not a disaster. No, it's definitely not. And I was someone who, uh, I well, I mean, really, his stroke is is different than last year, but I, I and I don't think that would have been a coach triggered thing. Uh, no. Anyways, I, I think he was trying to quicken the release, take a little bit of the, the vertical leap off of it. And uh, uh, yeah, but I, I mean, that's what happens when you change your shot. You, you're maybe going to miss a few in the, at the beginning of the season. Uh, but uh, it, it was a good change, clearly, because uh, he went through some lumps early, like going like 0 for 7 against Florida State. But uh, uh, yeah, now you're seeing the, the fruit of that labor and, and of those reps. Uh, he's been incredible. Yeah. And I don't think I, I think that's an interesting and important point that Eric makes like it's traditionally not coach triggered unless you have someone on your staff that was kind of like a known sharpshooter. Like for example, Marcus Howard has said that Brett Nelson changed his shot when he got to Marquette. Um, Hmm. Kenny Boynton, you know, as weird as his shot looked, you should watch his shot as a freshman and then watch it as a senior when like John Pelfrey got his hands on it a little bit. Like, so, you know what I mean? Like, so it, it, they do sometimes coaches will make adjustments Billy Donovan worked on Michael Frazier's release personally because, you know, one thing that made pudgy little six foot Billy kind of devastating at Providence was like it was just catching fire. I mean, you know, he he got the ball out so quickly. If you watch an old video of Donovan, it's ridiculous. Um, And so I think that's something that changed with Michael Frazier. But I really feel like you have to have a coach who was really good at it and like I think the best player on Florida staff was probably Mincy and he wasn't really like a, an assassin, right? He was kind of like a slash and score guy. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Who is the best player on the staff? I mean, I think I would, I think I would agree. Uh, uh, it, it'd be, uh, it'd be nickel. I was, yeah, I'd say nickels. Yeah, it might uh, be nickels actually. It might be nickels. Went, You're right. I, I, yeah. I would say uh, West Virginia, you know, defensive guy. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think well, but yeah, none of them coaches. were like none of them were <laughs> none like of them were shooters. Yeah, lockdown shooters that are going to be like, oh, I'm going to change your shot. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I again, I I don't think any coach is looking at Noah Locke shooting plus forty percent last year and being like, yeah, let's get you in the lab and, and change that. I, <laughs> I I just guess that Locke was like, hey, like uh, I want to quicken my release. I want to make it a little bit more repeatable by not putting as much right uh, as much jump into it. I, I I do not think it was so. Uh, uh, yeah, I, that was, I, there were some people that, cause I, cause I was someone who pointed out that his shot change had changed and, or his form had changed. And some people were, 
using that as a negative against the staff when shots weren't falling. Uh, if that was your belief, then you can give credit to the staff now. But um, I'm yeah. someone who didn't blame the staff then, and I, uh, uh, I, I guess I, I will just I will just say I think it's a it's a Noah Locke thing personally. Right, and, and good and for him. The- yeah, absolutely. And I think I think with Boynton, like that that's the most prominent example I can have. And that was really what it was with Pelfrey was like your stroke is not particularly repeatable, which is why Kenny would have like a seven for nine night and then like go like three for twenty, you know? Um, so they just tried to iron out some consistency there. But anyway, um don't want to go down that that rabbit hole too much. The the listener question is Michael Pusitara asking whether Andrew Nimhart should look to score more because it seems like Florida's offense, like their best nights have been these nights where Andrew just fills it up. Should Andrew shoot more is the question, I guess. Uh, I, I think he's got to look at getting towards the rim first. I, I just think that opens everything up. Like if you want to talk, uh, talk Noah Locke three point shooting. Uh, a lot of it is when Florida gets the ball into the paint and you kick it out to him. If you want to talk, uh, you know, Kerry Blackshear. I really think that Kerry Blackshear has been at his best this year when he's gotten offensive rebounds and putbacks, or he's gotten drop-off passes where he can use his strength to shield defenders and, uh, and and lay it in. So, and I mean, this is something that I will always talk about. You know, going back to past years on the podcast is like uh, flo- basketball is really all about getting the ball into the paint, uh, uh-huh. and, and everything goes from there. And I really think that Florida's two best options of getting the ball into the paint are uh, an Andrew Nemhart pick and roll. Uh, or it's a Keontae Johnson uh, catching the ball and attacking and closeout. Well, uh, you, even to do that, you kind of really need to get the ball inside, get it to Keontae Johnson, and then attack. So uh, I, I do think that whatever offense Florida deems uh, gets Nemhart going towards the rim uh, is the best offense. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a great answer. The only thing I would add to it is that I don't – like, Andrew's not a guy whose game is hunt shots. Like, his game as a point guard – it's actually funny, like his, there's a little bit of Torian Green to his offensive game. I know it's so different because he's 6'5", and Torian was, you know, 6'2", in, in heels. Um, but I think it's just in the sense of, like, they're both cerebral point guards who kind of take what defenses give. And so, like, if Andrew can get into the lane and, and create for others, that's what he wants to do first. And, and you know, Torian wanted to distribute first. And I think with Andrew, it's kind of like, okay, well now they're, they're going to lop off and go under screens on me and just leave me out here. Well, I'm going to hit the shot now. You know, if you're going to give me that wide open, like I'll take it. And so I think a lot of Andrew's big scoring nights are really products of taking what a defense gives him. Yeah. I, I do think that's when, uh, when things are at, at, at the, at its best probably, but, um, yeah, well, it's just it's going to be all about whether teams again, like some teams have guarded Andrew Emhart, like we want the ball out of his hands. We want to make someone else handle the ball and beat us. Uh, and that's where, you know, hunting shots is going to be tough. And then there's also been some teams that are like, uh, you know, Nemhard's not a not a great defender or sorry, not a great athlete. Um, so let's like let's see if we can kind of get him go, let him go in the paint and uh, and make things happen like we kind of saw against some of the like Florida State-ish type games. Uh, right. But uh, I have to correct something I said just really quickly because okay. as I was talking about Darius Nichols, I, I was just like, you know what? In the brief time that I saw him play, I, I do think he was actually a remember him as a shooter. So I went and looked it up, and oh, it was you wrong. He, yeah, he was an excellent shooter. So that was just okay. a blatant Sorry, disrespect everybody. for me and and uh, towards Darius Nichols, who shot forty two percent as a junior from three and thirty eight point five percent 
And, wow. uh, you know, that was an era, 2007, 2008, like where there was not a lot of three shot and percentages were not particularly high. So for him to shoot 42% and, and 38.5%, uh, those are two really, really good shooting seasons. So, uh, yeah, he was absolutely a really good, uh, uh, a really good shooter as a player. So, yeah, uh, it slipped my mind while we were talking about it first. Wow. I'm really glad that I, my memory was like, no, I actually think he maybe actually did shoot the ball pretty well. And I'm glad <laughs> I looked it up. So, so yes, apologies for that initial disrespect. Uh, shout out to uh, shout out to his shooting percentages. Shout out to him being 90th in the country in turnover rate and as a senior, a very responsible player with the basketball. And uh, of course, shout out to Darius Nichols, who holds the NCAA record for uh, for most games played without fouling out, which is uh, a bit of an obscure stat, but uh, one that he could hold for for quite a long time. <laughs> just had to, had to correct that one. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and openly apologize for the blatant Darius Nichols disrespect that that occurred on my end as well. I think. Uh, so I think we've settled the debate of who the best player on the staff was. Though Mincy was a really good player. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I like, like honestly, like I, I remember like a couple of games of Darius Nichols just because, uh, especially as a senior, like that was a uh, that team went to uh, they really went to the Sweet Sixteen. So yeah, Tyler I, I mean, I, yeah, oh, what a name! Like I mean, I was I was young <laughs> at that time, so like I wasn't the. Oh, they had they had Wellington Smith on that team like what a what a name all name team but uh that team yeah that team was awesome so so i mean i i didn't watch them a ton i i, I did not have the opportunity of watching uh watching mincy or watching white so uh nichols was the only one i actually i, I got to see but i will say hey you know nichols starting on a uh, on a sweet 16 west virginia team and shooting 38.5 percent from three I, I i i will i will probably lock that in as uh who i think the best the best player is, but that could also be disrespect to Mike White, who I've only been able to see highlights of. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Mike, Mike was on really good Ole Miss teams, um, but but Mike was like, he, he was like a scrappy defensive guy who didn't want to shoot. Um, so, <laughs> you know, if they're you know, like Mike used to be like shoot Kayvon, that no one was ever going shoot Mike. Mm. Just leave it at that. Um, but uh, yeah, so so it's good. Uh, so Vanderbilt, um, kind of. So you know what I'm going to say about Vanderbilt. Let's let's put it this way: the team responded to the moment uh, in a way that I think is encouraging. Because there's so much other stuff around this game where the game was absolutely, without a question, secondary to what was going on that, you know, I think that takes a level of maturity of focus. And we know that this team is not the best at maturity of focus. They're just not, Eric. And so I thought that was encouraging. Your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, there was definitely part of me that was – a little bit worried in a distraction like that, how, how that, you know, like, it's always like, you, you think of those like senior night home games, uh, which like, it just always seems like there's, uh, it, it kind of makes it weird for, for players at times that it can make for some like weird kind of uh, performances. And I think that this was kind of like a, a little bit of a, of, of a senior night uh, scaled up a little bit. And uh, I, I think it would have been very easy for players to be distracted uh, or just uh, you, you see all these NBA players in, in there and you see that everyone's there to see Billy Donovan. And uh, yeah, there's definitely an opportunity to be uh, uh, to be a little bit uh, uh, playing outside of yourself. But yeah, instead, Florida did. Uh, Florida played excellently. Uh, and, and again, like Vanderbilt has shown they've played a lot better of late. They've shown they're 
not a terrible basketball team. I think, you know, Mike White said something I totally agree with. And it was like, Hey, I'll put, I'd put my, I'd put Vanderbilt against any other one win uh, conference team in the country. And I, I would totally agree. Like uh, I do think Vanderbilt's better than the record suggests. And, uh, and Florida came out and uh, yeah, played focused and, and played great. Yeah. I mean, look, if you, now they're not the league leader anymore for the first time. Um, but you know, Vanderbilt beat LSU and it wasn't a fluke. I watched most of the game. Uh, so, you know, they're capable. Uh, and I thought Florida's first half performance was just really special. And, and what made it amazing to me was uh, that the officials in this game were terrible. They were terrible. Um, and, you know, if you've listened to us for two years, you know that Eric and I rarely dive into uh, official, you know, blasting. But they were so bad. And it was it was stunning to me because Tony Green is like maybe reputably one of the better officials in college basketball. And wow, it was oh, just so bad. Oh, I, so- I, I I dove in on this one. I've got a I've got a stat. Okay. Um, okay, actually, I don't really want to get into bashing officials. I'll say this, but I will not say the I, well, official's either, name. But- if someone if if someone wants to, I won't say his name. But there was an official <laughs> last night who has been um, officiating Division One basketball for four years. Um, last night, the so Florida Vanderbilt Green. game was not Tony Green. Um, <laughs> there's someone who's been refing for four years. Last night was the first high major basketball game he had ever officiated. Uh, uh-huh. He had never, never once officiated a high major basketball game. Uh, he officiated last night and uh, uh, may or may not have been involved in, in one of the many questionable calls or non calls. Oh. So that is, uh, uh, I, I, I just think that, like, I, I don't often dig into the ref, <laughs> uh, the, the ref stats and the ref history, but. Uh, uh, I did was just like, I should just see who was on the game. And uh, there was one official that I didn't recognize. I decided to check out his profile and saw that this was his first high major basketball game. So, uh, uh, yeah, maybe just uh, maybe a bit of a learning experience. Um, yeah, I just I didn't think it was officiated well at all. No. And, and you know, and, and, and so I don't want to go totally off the rails. And so I want to come back to to the Stackhouse thing because I don't want to go off the rails. Um, but but what made it impressive is you got two pretty bad foul calls on Andrew Newmore. I thought both were bad, Eric. And, and so Florida's point guard goes that, that averages what? 33.5 minutes a game goes to the bench against the Vanderbilt team. That's playing a lot better. And it's like nine to five. And, you know, honestly, I was a little worried because I said, I don't know, like they're going to have to figure it out. Or I even tweeted like Mike's going to have to put in Andrew with two fouls, maybe. And that never was necessary. Florida built a 29-point lead, and Andrew Nimhart played four minutes. That, that's really encouraging. That's super encouraging. Like, uh, you know, I just wrote about a bunch of Florida's lineups. Uh, you can see that at Gator Country, and just kind of one of their running themes is that uh, when Andrew Nimhart's on the floor, things go pretty well. And when, uh, when he's not, Florida has not been able to have much success. So this to see them have awesome success with Nemhart off the floor is, is very encouraging because it, to, to be quite honest, it's that has not really happened this year. I can't think of another time that Florida no. has played really, really good basketball with uh, for long stretches with Nemhart off the floor. Uh, they've had good, good stretches with Keontae Johnson off the floor. They've had good stretches with Blackshear off the floor. Uh, they have not had good stretches uh, up until this point without Nemhart. So yeah, that's a, uh, that's something that's really encouraging. Uh, and uh, you know, Vanderbilt scored 99 points on LSU. Like they, they've shown that they can, they can score the basketball. And one thing I thought was just like really notable about their, their defense. And this could be like, they were playing extra fired up on, on a night. Like it was, 
but something that was uh, I would say like like if someone was like asking me to describe why Florida was so good on defense the last two seasons um, or actually well every season under white uh, up until (laughs) this one um, one of the things that I would say is just that Florida was really quick to the ball like uh, someone would swing the ball from side to side and every gator on the flight of the ball uh, would really move and uh, sprint to their positions and the moment a a player caught the ball his defender would be right up in him uh, the help defender would be right where he needed to be. Uh, both players, one pass away, were uh, were either in the gaps or denying just whatever Florida's kind of philosophy was. Usually denying and and, and making that pass a little bit more difficult. And uh, we hadn't really seen that this year. But then I, I mean, against Vanderbilt, I just thought Florida was so quick to the basketball. Like Vanderbilt would move it. Uh, Florida was just quicker to the spots. All five guys, not just the person who was going to go guard the ball, which sometimes we've seen when Florida's defense hasn't been as good. This was like. Five guys really moving, playing connected and together. But, uh, but yeah, just their, their speed on defense, their, their speed to the basketball and, and where they needed to be. Um, I just thought this was very reminiscent of, of the, uh, the kind of top 15 defensive teams that Florida's had. And that, that's just not been something I could say uh, up until this point this year. Yeah, that's a terrific point. It's so funny. This is like, this is like Bizarro podcast because traditionally it's Eric breaking down offensive things and me breaking down defensive <laughs> things that I, I don't know if that's like just a product of our coach, you know, who knows, uh, <laughs> just, just the way we've gotten accustomed to it. So I, I, I was going to ask Eric about offense I mean, a 48 point outburst. Um, Vanderbilt's not great defensively. Um, they're, they're a little limited athletically in particular. And they, Ford also got two fouls on probably their best defensive big, uh, pretty early uh, credit carry Blackshear. Um, and so I think, you know, that was part of it. But Keontae Johnson got two fouls in the first half, too. Uh, you know, what did you what did you see offensively other than, you know, Noah Locke making everything? Um, Eric, was it was it ball movement? Was it what a response from Quez Glover after getting benched? Uh, was it we kind of got All-American Kerry Blackshear in the first half? Was it Omar Payne's activity or kind of all of the above? Well, the one thing that was really apparent to me was in the first game that Florida played against Vanderbilt, Kerry Blackshear just wasn't very good. And, and uh, I think he just got kind of like bullied by some of the, the bigger, you're not even bigger, sorry, the, the front court players of Vanderbilt, which are smaller players, but are, are physical guys. And Blackshear was just taken out of it a lot. And Stackhouse coming from the G League, coming from the NBA, he, he runs a lot of kind of NBA style defenses like uh, they really they play drop defensive coverage on, on a yeah. lot of pick and rolls. They also down side ball screens, uh, something that you see in the NBA a lot. Uh, and uh, one other thing they do like the NBA is uh, when Florida was throwing the ball down inside uh, to carry Blackshear, they weren't going to double. And that was something that, like, in so many college defenses, if the ball gets into the low post, uh, teams double. Uh, especially with Florida, they don't want they don't want Blackshear to be able to operate one on one. And uh, in this game, they were because Blackshear presumably like I would presume it's because Blackshear wasn't much of a factor in the first game. Uh, Vanderbilt said again that they were gonna they were gonna let Blackshear go one on one and see what happens from there. And uh, Florida ran a bunch of sets to get to get post ups for Blackshear. There's these kind of nice designed post up that they ran like over and over and over again. There was like this little like screen flex cut for Blackshear while the ball got moved side to side and it spaced the floor nicely for him to post up. And uh, a lot of good things came from that. So I do think it was like a little bit of a mix of Vanderbilt was like, yeah, we're going to let Blackshear go one on one. And Florida's like, okay, sweet, let's do it. And uh, obviously that worked (laughs) in Florida's favor. Yeah, no, I agree. I I actually thought that and I think I texted you about some of the flex cut stuff that they were running that they hadn't done much this Mm -hmm. year Um, was there was one where. 
you know, they would have, they had no a lock flash on flex cuts a couple times. And so everybody's so concerned about where Noah's going. It was actually really a smart design because the help defender would follow Noah and Florida got a couple really open threes out of it. I don't think they made either of them, but the one that they got for Trey Mann was beautiful and it just went in and out. Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a good little addition to the playbook for sure. And especially if teams are going to let Kerry Blackshear mostly go one-on-one, uh, like not going to send a hard double team, that's, uh, that's going to work. And uh, the same kind of – like Florida Rants, uh, like a similar kind of design post-up for Blackshear a, a couple times a season. And uh, sometimes it can be tough just like when, when teams know that you're trying to throw the ball inside and they're going to be willing to, to double team and, and make you try to kick it out and they'll try to recover before you can shoot. Like uh, it, it has made it difficult, but, uh, but yeah, they, they ran it crisply. And uh, uh, again, for them to pound the ball inside while Andrew Nemhart's not on the floor, like to me, it would have been like, Hey, Andrew Nemhart's on the floor. Like let's take away the post up. Let's see if like, Trey Mann or someone else, like well, not really Quez Glover, he wasn't on the floor much, but let's see if like Trey Mann can beat us in pick and roll because, you know, Nemhart's not on the floor to do it. But uh, yeah, they, instead they, they, they let Florida kind of run their stuff and uh, Florida looked great. 22 minutes from Quez, uh, most of them in the first half, spelling Andrew, you know, three assists, three turnovers, uh, you know, still has this big turnover number. Um, but and really like a couple drives through he kind of got in the in the paint and you know did something crazy but i saw a really good response after being benched and kind of progress in terms of playing under control and and like evaluating uh it was a point mark wise made on the a&m broadcast that i thought was like pretty smart is like Florida in some of the some of their possessions, especially against man defense, and it's something Eric and I have talked about, Eric, where we've talked about like how Florida's offense sometimes when they have to rescreen gets bogged down because players don't catch and evaluate like they catch and dribble. Yeah, it's a good point. And uh, there was still definitely some tough turnovers from from Glover who just like didn't recognize where help defenders were and, and right. got his his blinders on to, uh, to the hoop and uh I, I mean, the one talking about like bouncing back. I mean, the one time he turned the ball over and came back for that block, that was pretty awesome. But yeah, uh, he also had some, you know, he had two nice buckets that did show some of the, the, the good side of him. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I think at this point, like, uh, you know, maybe you're looking long-term with Glover and you, you're going to say like, yeah, he's going to have to be someone with the ball in his hands. So we can, we're going to have to just put the ball in his hands and, and see what happens. But uh, I, I do think when you see his, the turnovers he's, he's created versus the uh, the kind of low amount of assists or uh, amount he's distributed the ball. Like uh, it's still a little bit surprising to me that that mm-hmm. they don't put the ball more in, in Trey Mann's hands. And I, I do know it's not like Trey Mann has been so great offensively that he has commanded the basketball, uh, but he certainly hasn't been as uh, uh, as risky as as uh, as Glover with it. And that it, we'll we'll see moving forward. But um, I would say you know against Texas A and M, like you know Mann got in and. And Glover didn't. Of course, they both got to play lots due to the uh, due to the score in Vanderbilt. But uh, yeah, hopefully, and yeah, hopefully, playing all those minutes uh, really helps him out uh, uh, moving forward. Because I, I would, you know, hope that every turnover he has kind of teaches him a little bit about what he can get away with in the SEC and, and what he can't. And yeah, hopefully that uh, some of those turnovers just you know do slowly start to go down. So, uh, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about kind of I don't want to call it the return of Omar Payne because I actually think they made a conscious effort to try to play him against AM and he like got the hook and hold that everybody loves. You know what I mean? 
And so mm-hmm. they they were kind of foul troubled out of being able to include him more in the A&M game. So I don't know how fair that criticism is of the staff. Like circumstance kind of demanded that Kane not play as much. But certainly a conscious effort to play him in the first half, at least, against Vanderbilt. He played, what, 13 minutes in the first half and four in the second. I don't know how much of the second half stuff was about score, about playing Jason DeTobo, but uh, really high-quality minutes for Moore. Yeah, it was excellent. And, you, you know, truthfully, like, DeTobo probably needs those second-half garbage-time minutes more than more than Payne. So uh, I, I do kind of get that, but it was just, like, another indication that, the, the Gators really are better when Omar Payne's on the floor. Like, uh, I like I don't think he gets credit for this, so I that's why I just like make sure to always talk about it. But like, the Gators had two like easy layups where you know on the broadcast they're like, and those are the easiest two points he'll get in his career, and it's because like Omar Payne completely sealed a help defender, and Keontae Johnson just like t- took one step to the rim and laid it in, and uh, things like that. Like I, Omar Payne sets awesome screens on the ball. He sets awesome screens away from the ball. Uh, that's something that's underrated. We know he's going to absolutely pound the offensive glass. Uh, we know he's a shot-blocking presence that is not really matched by anyone else on the roster. Uh, Scotty Lewis's block numbers are great, but, you know, he gets those in, like, kind of a little bit of a different way than... than it's Omar emergency Payne, just defense, like a, right? Yeah. Right. And and there's... Which is, like, awesome for Scotty Lewis, but he's not the traditional, like, he's holding down the paint. He's a, he's rotating over, j- jumping vertically. Um yeah, so I, I yeah, I, I think that it, it was it, it wasn't like we saw anything new from Omar Payne. It was just like him showing and re- showing us again and reestablishing that he just does so many of the little things so well that uh, that you know really makes me think. And uh, the numbers would also say that the Gators are a better team with with him on the floor. So six consecutive game where Florida's best lineup doesn't play. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think we've been really nice, and and I think for good reason. I think that the Especially, I really think that, you know, the staff had a good week, regardless of opponent. Like, there were some things that Florida implemented that that worked really well. It also continues to be mystifying to me in the age of analytics why the best lineup can't get on the floor. And, and for the sixth consecutive game, they didn't. Maybe it was because of foul trouble to Andrew Nimhart. Maybe that's why this time. But then Eric pointed out, didn't happen in the second half either. It was, it was Trey Mann, right? Not Noah Lock. Yeah, they yeah they didn't they were yeah they had they did have uh, Payne and and Blackshawn together, but uh, they went yeah, four or five. Uh, right. A, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, I wrote about the uh, I, I just I don't know I've, I've probably talked about it enough and people are tired of it, but and at this point, like this many games without it, it's just probably not on their radar, and that's uh, yeah something <laughs> something I'll just have to come to terms with. But uh, uh, yeah, the the data against some of the best opponents Florida has played when Florida has played their best basketball has been particular lineup. And uh, if things, if Florida does play some important games later in the season, there's just, you know, I kind of just believe that that lineup will find its way back to the floor and play beautiful basketball. So uh, we'll see, I guess. We will see. You know what? I want to spend the last time that we have together because Eric's on a, on a sketch. Um, I want to spend the last time we have on Billy Donovan. So what I'm going to do, everybody is put uh i did this for utah state and hopefully i don't jinx the result by doing it the way i did it with utah state but i'll do like a 15 minute arkansas preview and just drop it um you know because i think it's weird arkansas lost four in a row they have a, a pretty important injury and i think that's kind of the big reason that there's a problem i don't think it's necessarily that like they're not good um but but i want to i think we needed to, to spend it on billy donovan uh, obviously, 
just an incredible night um, in Gainesville. And, you know, everybody that went says that, you know, that, that it was one of the more memorable experiences that they've had as Gator fans. A few people that I texted with that were there uh, just talked about, you know, just goosebumps basically from the moment they walked in the building. It felt different. It felt special. Uh, an incredible deserved honor for Coach Donovan. Yeah, I, I think that they did it super well. And I, when so many people just like love Billy Donovan so much, it can be really tough to like pull off an event that everyone feels like properly honors him. Like that's one thing that I feel like is scary. Like when you say you're going to name the court after Billy Donovan, the expectations of what that event and what that night is going to look like are going to be like super, super high in the eyes of many. And while I wasn't there in the building, um, everyone says it went super, super well on the broadcast. It looks super, super good. Uh, to get that many ex players is amazing. Like I know yeah. that they did it on All Star Weekend to get some of these NBA players the the chance to come back, but like still getting that many people in the building at, at once on any weekend, uh, that's tough. Uh, guys that play in leagues all over the world, there's just so many of them that were able to make it. So I just think that they just like hit it out of the park when it came to to putting on an amazing night, an amazing event. Um, like honestly, uh, something that I didn't think got enough run on on Twitter as people talked about it is like a lot of the court namings I feel like aesthetically are, are quite poor around the world of college basketball. And I think the Billy Donovan court, like the, the signature, the, the, the size of it, the color, I think it looks awesome. And uh, I don't think people realize that like, if you look at what some of the other courts are named around the country, uh, some of them are like really poor font, weird colors, uh, just like really like obtrusive to the eyes. Like, they, they just don't look good. And I thought it just like looked awesome too. So, Hey, a anything, a everything about the court naming, uh, I thought it was awesome. Yeah, it was pretty incredible. I want, I want to talk about the players in a minute because it's kind of, uh, I wrote a piece at Saturday down South. You guys check it out if you want. Um, talk to, to Kevin Brockway who, who covered the program and Billy for over a decade. Um, and, you know, Kevin had some really fascinating things to say. Talked to Blake Lovell just about Donovan's influence on SEC basketball, uh, how he kind of showed what was possible down south. And then how Donovan, you know, I think the reason that there was so much emotion and passion in the building from, from what I've heard is that, and from what I know about Billy is, it wasn't just basketball. Like it was his impact in Gainesville, whether it was, whether it was starting St. Francis school or, or building a new uh, children's hospital, basically with like Christine, uh, him and Christine's like investment in that. And, you know, because they had a stillborn child and the importance of having, you know, a world-class uh, prenatal care center in Gainesville, a pediatric cancer ward that they invested in, like, Everything about Donovan's sense of culture started with this idea that, you know, you want to invest in your community and that the basketball part team is kind of a part of a larger community. And I think what made the great Donovan team so much fun is that they kind of felt like they belonged to everybody. Um, and I know maybe that's a little cliche, but, you know, you think about the 2014 team, like just the way that they embodied what a team should be, or you think about the O4s and just how much of part of the fabric of UF life they were. So I felt like, you know, it was amazing that they could honor that. And then, you know, it was visible that Donovan was emotionally overwhelmed by it, that, that he, you know, was truly touched. 
Oh uh, yeah, like so. Chris, uh, Chris Harry had uh, had the podcast on the Gator Tales with uh, the Gator Tales podcast with uh, uh, with Donovan, and it, it was awesome. And people should absolutely listen to that if yeah, they haven't already. And, <laughs> and I mean, just like again to hear Billy Donovan talking about like how like the community of Gainesville and the diversity that that Shans there has brought in, in people that live in the community. Like you just don't hear that from coaches. Like nowadays, it's like. Coaches are just mercenaries. Like I should make an overarching say so many coaches in college basketball are just mercenaries, right? Like they, they go where the best, the best pay is in where they feel like the best league is. And uh, I, I just don't feel like in a lot of circumstances, there's, there's a lot of coaches that just like truly love their schools, much less love their communities. And uh, just to hear him talk about it with, uh, with Chris Harry was just like magical. Like he just, uh, like, I feel like he could have been coaching any sport, and he would have just like been equally as happy because he just like loved being in Gainesville and loved the university. And uh, I, I do think that like, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think one thing that was just like hilarious too, uh, that I loved was just like even Billy Donovan, like what he was wearing at uh, what he was wearing last night with just like his like plain pants and like a plain button down shirt untucked. Like it really just like was so Billy to just be like, uh, it just felt like he was like hanging out with family. You know what I mean? Like he right. just really treated things like family and, one thing that I, one reason I really think that people love Billy Donovan and love looking back on it, that era is that he definitely embodies a, an era of college basketball that I think a lot of people are nostalgic for where, uh, you know, things really were a family. He really was part of the community, uh, whether it was the University of Florida community or the Gainesville community. And uh, yeah, you just like don't see that often. And it just makes it like that much more special what, uh, what Donovan did. And I, I just hope people realize that like, obviously his basketball accomplishments were, uh, something that you know very 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 few coaches can replicate uh but you're also just not going to get that passion from from many coaches ever so and and i'll i, I saved this for florida basketball and kept it out of my uh saturday down south article because donovan and and jeremy foley we should point out were innovators in terms of the way that they approached administrative commitment to basketball in the south like florida had a standalone basketball facility that was state-of-the-art before Kentucky did. Kentucky had a building, but it wasn't, at the time, built specifically for basketball. Not a lot of people know that. And, and they built their basketball one later. And now Ole Miss has one. Auburn has one. Arkansas is building one. Like Teams are responding to what Donovan and Foley did years ago. And, you know, Kevin Brocker told me, Joe Kanoa, Brad Beal, some of the players that were back last night that adore Billy Donovan, and you saw their tributes on Twitter, so many of them, you know, that they came because they knew they had a place and a culture where they could get better and where it would be about them first. And so it was funny to me to see, not funny, uh, it was not at all surprising to me to see Billy in his speech immediately talk about players. Like, you know, no, this is really about players. And I think when Eric talks about being nostalgic for that, that's something that, you know, so much of sports now is about the coach. You know, oh, this coach, you know, oh, you know, we talk about in college football, even saving the, 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 the Mullen revolution, these kinds of things. Donovan, it was always deferring to players who, who have dope sweatshirts like Bradley. Beal. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was incredible, like, to see these tributes, a guy like Mike Miller paying tribute. Uh, Udonis Haslam just talking about how he always felt like no matter what. Billy was going to put them in position to win, but also put them in positions to be successful in life. Uh, and that's kind of who Billy was and the greatest and, and is, and the greatest people in our sport are that. So um, 
but to me, I guess the point I'm making is when you see all those players, Eric, and you see the administrative commitment that Florida has to basketball, like people worried about our program tonight. Last night was kind of a stinging rebuttal to them, in my opinion. Like Florida basketball isn't going anywhere. It's important. Uh, there are players that deeply, deeply care about it. And Donovan's cultural legacy is secure. And I think that Scott Strickland and the custodians of that understand that, and they aren't going to let anything happen to it. And that was kind of my takeaway that I kept out of the Saturday Down South article because I asked Udonis Haslam about it. And, and that was Udonis' comment was, you know, Florida basketball will always be, you know, a power. They're, they're going to do everything in their power, the players, the administration, to make sure that that legacy is never uh, in jeopardy. And so when people are worried about a season that's been somewhat disappointing, please keep that in mind. Yeah, no, that's beautifully said. And I, I, I mean, like something I was going to just say that was far less eloquent was uh, the second <laughs> best moment of the night was uh, was when Andrew Nemhard got that first terrible offensive foul call on him and Joakim Noah was standing up screaming at the ref from like 10 feet away. Uh, that was awesome. And I, I just, again, to see just like uh, how well some of these guys that were like really like, really like a several basketball generations ago, just still, still having that passion. And uh, again, Brad Beal, who is, you know, I talked about some coaches being mercenaries. Like I, I would say a lot of these one and done players are really mercenaries who don't really feel like they were really students or a part of a school where like Bradley Beal is like, just like a, a true Gator and a die to come back. And uh <laughs> And represent. I just thought that stuff, that kind of stuff, was so awesome. And I and I hope the players were able to. Uh, the players really hope. Like I hope some of them were really able to to gain something from that uh, from that experience as well. And uh, yeah, so I'm. Uh, you you definitely had much more eloquent things to say. I mean, you were uh, <laughs> you were you were the one who got to really experience the uh, the Donovan era a little bit better. Uh, but for some people who you know haven't, I haven't really missed me telling a story on the podcast a while ago. I mean, like Billy Donovan's really the reason I'm, I'm a Florida Gators fan, just because like, again, when I was like 12 years old, turning on college basketball for the first time, I just like could not believe the demeanor of a lot of these coaches that were, that I just thought were like, so like, so disrespectful to, to their players and, and to the officials and, and Donovan was different. And that's the first thing that drew me to, to Florida basketball. So uh, while, when I was watching those, yeah, watching those championship teams, I definitely wasn't super knowledgeable as a basketball fan at like 12 or 13 and, and couldn't properly appreciate just like how amazing it was because, you know, I was too young to know what Florida basketball was before Billy Donovan. I, I was ignorant to that kind of stuff. Um, I can look at look back at it now and, and fully understand what, what Donovan did. Uh, but also at the same time, it's still like there's still definitely a huge reason like why Billy Donovan kind of led me to Florida basketball. And for that, I will be like eternally grateful. Yeah, and, th and that's that's a great way to end it. I'll end it with this final story that that apparently touched uh, Omar Payne's mom and and his family, because uh, because you brought up the great Joe Kim Noah thing. I guess they call it block on Omar early in the first half, and Al Horford got in on that action, <laughs> and um, apparently screamed, "Oh come on, Tony! You've been calling that a block for a decade, and it's never been a block." <laughs> so, you talk about our guys having passion. Uh, you know, they're, they're all Gators to the core. Nothing's going to change that. And I think that's how you know that the program will be safe. Um, thanks for listening. We will do, I'll drop an Arkansas preview and, um, we will, we'll do two shows this week because there's more time between games. So thanks everybody. Um, bye-bye.